Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Does anyone keep $480,000 in a couple of gold bars in their to-go bag? Welcome to Politicology. I am not Ron Steslow. I'm Hagar Shamali filling in for Ron while he's away this week. This is the weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup is highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Good to see you, Susan. Great to be with you. So glad you're hosting today. Thank you. It's very exciting. Also returning to the Roundup is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He's an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection. And he's the author of the book, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. Mark, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a little sleepy after after last night. I don't think I'll ever get those two hours of my life back. Yeah, well, we're going to dive into that. I think we all have a lot of thoughts about the Republican primary debate. So up first this week, we'll look at Donald Trump's speech in Michigan and the undercard Republican primary debate. Then we're going to discuss the indictment of U.S. Senator Robert Menendez, the allegations that he worked to help Egypt's authoritarian regime, and the calls for his resignation. Next up, we'll look at Semaphore's reporting inside Iran's operation to influence how the Western world views Tehran and U.S. foreign policy. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll look at whistleblower testimony alleging the CIA tried to cover up its own assessment that COVID likely came from a lab leak. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. All right, let's start with the Republican debate. On Wednesday night, right before his primary challengers took the stage for their debate, Donald Trump spoke outside of Detroit. He went to Michigan in the midst of the United Auto Workers strike, hoping to win back some of the voters who helped pave the way for his victory in 2016. And his speech was heavy on the economic nationalism that fueled his 2016 campaign, although he didn't address the union's demands. And he previously labeled his remarks as showing solidarity with the UAE workers on strike, but his speech was at a non-union auto parts plant in front of an invite-only crowd. There were about 300 people in the crowd, but the New York Times reported that it was unclear if more than a handful of UAW members were actually present at the event. Trump repeatedly asked for an endorsement from the UAW president. At the same time, he worked to drive a wedge between the rank-and-file workers and union leaders over their issue of electric vehicles. So he repeatedly attacked EVs as an existential threat to American car companies and auto workers. And a lot of the coverage of the strike has focused on the potential of automakers building plants in states where unions have less power and where it's harder to unionize. 
Trump tried to make it a more existential question, not about whether the car manufacturing jobs would be in Michigan instead of Tennessee, but whether auto manufacturing jobs would exist in the U.S. at all. And he took aim specifically at Biden's clean air proposal that calls for two out of three new cars sold to be electric by 2023. So Susan, I want to start with you. What do you make of this reframing of the enemy here to be Biden and China instead of a business worker issue? And how did you see Trump's speech in in Michigan altogether? Well, first, everything that Donald Trump does is about us versus them. He likes to create that dynamic. And it does not matter whether it's domestic policy, foreign policy, it's about him and retribution for me and us, that kind of thing. So it's it's interesting that he, he of course, went to a non-union hall, as you mentioned. There were people holding signs. And when asked by reporters, like, are you a union member? No. Well, why are you holding the sign? I was told to. I mean, reminds me very much of Donald Trump when he had um, people of color behind him holding blacks for Trump. It was just as laughable um, that he would think he could maximize on it. But here's the thing. It's not that it's not effective. Because if you do see that visual, people aren't going deep. You see the visual and you say workers for Trump, union for Trump. And again, by creating this rank and file versus the union leaders, it's exactly how he got those votes in 2016. He was able to peel off union workers without union support because they felt that he understood their pain, even though he, you know, is a businessman. And I kind of use air quotes on that because now we know all of his quote successes are basically fraudulent. It was smart for him to do this rally in many ways, because being on that debate stage, which I know we'll get to, would have done him absolutely no good. So he created a little counter programming. And by doing it, again, People aren't into it like we are. They are seeing a passing of, oh, look at Trump. He's talking about the union workers. That's all they're going to take away for it. And he's better off politically as a result of doing it. You know, it's. I want to dive into this question about how the perception and how much folks are aware of what he was trying to do by dividing the union workers and the leaders, as you mentioned, and given that he that he did succeed in 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 2016 and getting a lot of voters from that crowd, um, this event was the day after Joe Biden went to meet with union auto workers on the picket line just a couple miles from where Trump gave his speech, and Biden was very explicit in his support for the union and their demands. And he was criticized for this by Stephen Ratter, who headed President Obama's auto industry task force, who called the visit outrageous. And apparently Biden went and went for this visit against the advice of his aides. But Trump has pretty good support among the rank and file of auto workers. And the director of labor studies at Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations told CNN that about 40% of auto workers supported Trump in the last election. So Trump really leaned into this rhetoric about outsourcing jobs and moving factories overseas. And I can imagine a lot of listeners thinking that Biden is clearly aligned with union workers and Trump isn't. So Susan, can you help us understand why Trump has that level of support from union members? members altogether and how you see this playing out over the next year as we run up to the election. First, let's start with Biden, because 
I personally thought it made him look it was made him look small. He should be doing big presidential things. He just didn't even look good. Like the visual just didn't work for me. And yet I have learned, especially after 2022, not to go against Joe Biden's political instincts. Because if you would have asked me in October of 2022, what should Biden be talking about in the Democrats? It would have been the economy, the economy, the economy. I would have been wrong. I was wrong. That's okay. It happens. <laughs> um, but I think when it comes to to Trump, he started off his 2016 campaign really as a populist and tried to kind of keep that image all the way through. And frankly, a lot of other Republicans tried to grasp onto it, namely like Tom Cotton. And failed miserably at it because there was a lot of talk. Is is the Republican Party a populist party? It's not. It really is Donald Trump's party, and that's the segment that he's leading. But the other thing now, Michigan, because it's so close, we're talking about thousands of, you know, tens of thousands of votes, not hundreds of thousands of votes. It is important um, union-wise, but the importance of unions has shrunk so much since, like, Ronald Reagan had them because that's the last person, a Republican, who really was able to kind of grasp on and hold on to that, that, that the, the populism and, or more importantly, the understanding of the average worker. And that's, that was the movement of Democrats for Reagan. It was, it was transformational. That's, you know, back then. And so I think Trump was trying to take a little bit of that. The, the big problem is right now he goes unquestioned. And he just kind of keeps plowing through it. Biden, I think, should have settled the strike, not gone on strike. But again, you know, it's a political question and he's proven himself right. But again, I just didn't like when I see when I see the two visuals of Biden with the group of people behind him and him kind of holding the blowhorn eh, or the windbreaker. And then you see Trump at that rally. Who do you think labor supports? If you're not paying attention and you only get like a snapshot on the communication side, it does work for Donald Trump. It's interesting. I mean, and Biden has come out very, he was very explicit in supporting their demands for a 40% increase in pay and and uh, union workers working on electric vehicles. But, uh, but you know, this, I, I think this, this issue is not going to go away over the next year. Um, and which it's a perfect segue to kind of, dive into the Republican debate last night, the most riveting entertainment, I'm sure, as, as anyone who watched would agree. Um, right after the speech, the seven people running behind Trump in the Republican primary took the debate stage at the Reagan Library in California. And the New York Times described the debate as fierce and unruly. So there was a lot of interruption and shouting at each other. If you missed it, don't worry, you didn't miss much. Nikki Haley spent the night on offense, landing attacks on Ron DeSantis, Senator Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy, some of which were entertaining. I'd love to know what you both took away from that debate. Mark, why don't you start with us? And I'd also like to know what your thoughts are from both of you on Trump deciding not to attend. What does that mean for the for him and what does that mean for the other candidates? Well, as you know, as someone who follows national security and, and foreign policy, to me, kind of two things stood out. One was just absolutely glaring, and that's the absence of any question from the Fox moderators about Donald Trump, in essence, threatening, you know, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Mark Milley, um, which was something that was, you know, so kind of beyond the pale and outrageous, and really dominated a lot of the news cycle 
um, certainly not on Fox, but definitely on, on you know, CNN and, and MSNBC and others. And it wasn't asked. And that's extraordinary because if there's ever something that w- is kind of a layup for anyone um, is simply to condemn that. Um, and so I'm dis- I, was, I was disappointed, not terribly surprised it wasn't asked, um, but that's something that really struck me. And the other part um, has to do with Ukraine and kind of what is this kind of struggle within the Re- Republican Party. I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways to look at this. You know, there is a very noisy minority who is, you know, certainly calling for an end to U.S. assistance. Um, you have some candidates who are all over the place on this. I mean, Ron DeSantis, you know, has sometimes been okay and then has been awful. And so, and, and you know, again, yesterday was, um, I did, he just said he was going to end the war, which makes no sense. And then you have Nikki Haley, who actually, and, and Tim Scott, who are much more um, kind of old Republican thinking on, on national security. But to me, you know, as, as someone who certainly cares about the U.S. standing in the world and what the war in Ukraine means, um, you know, that was addressed. Uh, and, and that's important. And, you know, do voters care? Do Republican voters care? Uh, I don't know. I certainly care. Um, and, you know, whoever kind of comes out of this, I don't even know if it matters because of Donald Trump's lead, but you do want kind of the number two contender, I- at least for, um, you know, for U.S. foreign policy goals, you do want them to be in favor of a continued assistance to Ukraine. So that, that's really what kind of caught my, caught my eye. And of course, the kind of weird, disgusting, odd sex joke um, with Mike Pence and that was just weird. Yeah, and you have to address it. Sorry, I know this is a serious show, but that was gross. I want to dive in. Yeah, we're gonna- just the fact that you say that is funny and disturbing. <laughs> Why don't you share the joke, Mark? For those who may have missed the debate, please share with us. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, you guys go, go ahead. And, and I mean, it was, it was just, it was a quip between what it was, it was between uh, Chris Christie and then Pence having to do with teachers unions. And it kind of evolved into this weird thing about who you sleep with at night. And it was just gross. Yes. I was, I was, I had goosebumps. I was just, it was icky. Uh, Pence said at one point. I didn't see that coming. It was so disturbing because like Christie just kind of threw it out there. Like, well, I didn't sleep with a member of the teachers union every night. And I'm like, what? Huh? Yeah. yeah. And then when yeah. Mike Pence like stumbles over the fact that he goes to bed with a teacher. Yeah. For the last 50 years, I think he said that. Like, I've been sleeping with a teacher the last 50 years. I was like, ew, ew, ew. (laughs) We don't want to know this. I I almost wish they stayed with their practice lines, although it sounds like that was a practice line for Christie. Right. Which, at least Pence just messed it up and flubbed it up and looked, like, disturbing. But Christie wanted to bring that line. He had two hours to talk about a lot of things and bring his lines. And that is what he thought was a good idea. Mm-hmm. That is bothering. That, 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 that is troubling. You almost missed the fly from the old debate. Yeah. yeah. Years ago. That yeah. was a, uh, yeah. but you know, so I think it, it, it did kind of, a, you know, blew up Twitter. That's for sure. Um, the kind of the weird sex joke, but, uh, but on a serious note, I mean, you know, one of the things that we really, uh, you know, it's not that what I follow, it's my, Friends overseas, I still have lots of contacts, you know, with, you know, intelligence services uh, and, and foreign governments. And, you know, they watch this stuff. And particularly if, you know, within NATO partners and Ukrainians, um, you know, when you have this noisy minority, right, talk about ending assistance to Ukraine, um, that is of incredible concern. And, you know, I think if you, if you, you know, talk to many foreign policy analysts, uh, uh, both in the United States and around the world, you know, the, the greatest threat to Ukraine actually, you know, winning whatever that might be, or, or regaining territory and coming out in favor, um, is not the Russians, not the Russian military, it's the American political scene. 
And so that's something that, you know, amazingly enough, when you go overseas and, you, you know, I, I remember jumping in a cab in, in Greece one time and the Greek cab driver was giving me kind of the, you know, his rundown on U.S. midterm elections. Um, people care and people listen uh, and uh, perhaps sometimes more than, than Americans do. But um, I think the debate certainly was watched in European capitals and they're always looking for signs on, on the degree of support um, within the GOP for, for uh, kind of continued assistance to Ukraine. Okay, I, I can't imagine not supporting Ukraine. I mean, it's it's logical. It's what our country's based on. It's protecting democracy. It's it it's NATO. It's it's everything um that we're supposed to be behind as in the United States. It's a nonpartisan issue, protecting democracy. But what that's what is so scary to me about these Republicans that are talking about taking away Ukraine aid. Because they say, why should we support you know, people in Ukraine when we have to do these things for Americans at home? Well, they're also saying that it's okay to start picking away at the democracy at home. And Donald Trump started that in 2016. And it's one of the messages that have cons- has been his constant is to undermine our voting system how we elect people. And that, I think, is a little bit what Mark was also talking about, like how we're undermining ourselves as a country and how it's perceived abroad. Like when you, I speak to journalists and I'm like, oh no, but you really need to focus on things like this. And they're like, why? Your country doesn't do it anymore. And it's like, yeah, you're kind of right. Like, and who are we to oversee elections in other countries right now when we, we talk about things at home the way we do. So I think, you you know, Ukraine was very significant as far as foreign policy, but it was also really important to understand the internal fights within the Republican Party and how it affects our democracy at home. Yeah. And well, and these, you know, as Mark mentioned, the world is is watching and they're seeing whether whether they are listening to the policies, the fact that this is that Ukraine is is becoming an issue and and therefore that nothing is going to happen over the next year for them, for Ukraine for in particular, that informs Putin's decisions. But but they also watch the absurdity on on stage, right? When um a lot of the press I noticed was about uh Nikki Haley and how she came out real strong against against um her fellow candidates. You know, she said on China was obviously kept coming up and she told Vivek Ramaswamy when he was talking about expanding outreach to young people through TikTok. Um and I should add by the way that he he also said at some point earlier that that kids under 16 should not have any access to social media, but whatever, he seems to be contradicting himself. He said, Haley told him, honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber. And I burst out laughing at that. But it made me wonder, are these debates valuable in any way when you just have these lame zingers and and short time frames and a lot of talking points and and frankly, sometimes lies? You know, what does it do for our own democracy and also how does the, how does the world perceive it? Now that is a big question to end on when we need to move on to the next segment, but I'd love any last you know my last thoughts on that in particular. Well, I think it's a reflection of that we don't really care about how we choose our candidates. When you have debates on either side with 30-second responses and 15-second rebuttals, you can't talk about the issues nor can the the moderators force the issues. And the other thing we didn't hear a lot about last night was just how poorly the moderators did in keeping people in line and responsible. I mean, I give them a little bit of for trying, but really they let the show get away from them. And that's why you, know, you, you also need to be more careful of who you let on stage. 
but more importantly, how we format it. People can pay attention to an answer for a minute, 90 seconds on something like Ukraine or healthcare. And unfortunately, the debates, the way the debates are set up, it doesn't allow it and then has just bigger implications. Let's dive into our next topic, uh, focusing in on Senator Menendez and the news of late. On Friday, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York announced that they had unsealed an indictment charging Senator Robert Menendez, his wife, and three New Jersey businessmen with a years-long bribery scheme. Until Friday, Menendez was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and that's particularly important because the indictment alleges that Menendez accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for using his position to protect those businessmen and enrich them and to benefit the government of Egypt, which is a major accusation. The allegations include his efforts to benefit Egypt despite the U.S. government's misgivings over their human rights record that have prompted Congress to restrict aid. So, for example, some of the examples in the indictment allege that Menendez's efforts to lift a hold on $300 million in aid to Egypt was part of the scheme, uh, that he did that in exchange for a no-show job for his wife to be on this businessman's payroll. In May of 2018, Menendez allegedly ghost wrote a letter on behalf of the Egyptian government requesting that the aid be unfrozen. Uh, the indictment also alleges that Menendez gave non-public information about people working in the U.S. Embassy in Cairo to Egyptian officials through his wife. Uh, as a former government employee, I can tell you that's super sketch. Menendez requested this information about the number of staff and their nationality, passed it on to his girlfriend, who then passed it on to the Egyptian government. Uh, now, after the indictment, Menendez has stepped down temporarily from his role as chairman of the, Sen of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has pled not guilty. He, he insists on his innocence. And uh, now Senate Democratic rules require that any member charged with a felony to give up their leadership position. But Menendez continues to maintain his, his innocence. So that, there's a lot to unpack here. And Mark, you, you happen to just co-author a great piece about this, um, about what's at stake here. Uh, for our national security and what this means for Menendez. And, and I should add, by the way, that that numerous Democrats have called on him to resign, including his own uh, fellow Senator, uh, Cory Booker from New Jersey. So, Mark, let's start with you. How are you thinking about the allegations about Menendez using his position to aid Egypt? What's at stake here? So, so first of all, you know, when, when the indictment came out or the document came out, the 39 pages, you know, my first thought was, you know, espionage is the second oldest profession. Um, you know, ultimately, this is a, I think, a, a really significant story because you have an ostensible ally of the United States, the government of Egypt, um, who seems to have recruited the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That is a staggering statement to make. And, you know, and as you dive into, you know, the, the 39 pages, you know, some of the things that really um, caught my eye was not only, you know, there's the notion of the public corruption, you know, the gold bars or whatever this stuff. I mean, it does sound like a uh, you know, a bad grade B movie. Um, but it, but there are really hallmarks of espionage, huge counterintelligence issues, and then what we call covert influence. Um, and, you know, this this has, you know, my old job as a, as a CIA case officer, you know, my job was to spot assess, um, develop, recruit, and handle an agent. And what Menendez was doing for the government of Egypt really looked exactly like how a foreign intelligence service or any intelligence, intelligence service would recruit someone. Um, the damaging things 
which uh, again, I, I, and I'm sure the Department of Justice, uh, you know, uh, sees this quite clearly is, you know, the provision of the diplomatic list. Why, you know, that seems to be innocuous, but it's not. Um, because what does the government of Egypt want to do with that list? Well, first of all, they want to find out, and I have to be careful, or, you know, find out if there would be any undercover intelligence officers. Uh, uh, and this could, um, pr- you know, help them. They also want to see, even in the overt, the political section officers, the regular State Department, you know, who is going to be meeting with Egyptian opposition. Um, and so it could tell them a lot. And when you ask for something like this, a document, that's the first step in how you end up actually recruiting somebody. Um, getting them to pass, uh, which is something sensitive, perhaps not classified, then asking questions about it. Um, so this was just kind of glaring to me. The other part of it, and I think that that goes to uh, what we call covert influence, is you know when Menendez would do. I mean, what what he did was was <laughs> I was I was stunned. He actually met with the chief of Egyptian intelligence um, before his fellow senators were going to grill this Egyptian official on Egypt's role in the Khashoggi uh, uh, murder. Um, where then Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis obviously committed a, a heinous crime. Um, Menendez, who seems to have you know uh, see, seen himself as a champion of human rights, was actually helping um, you know two autocratic regimes uh, cover something up. So um, quite extraordinary. And then kind of the last piece too, when you talk about kind of foreign assistance helping the Egyptians, is um, uh, as as Congress would have questions, uh, uh, you know, putting these holds on on foreign assistance and him working behind the scenes. Um, so in totality, again, the bottom line on this is it appears that our ally, Egypt, um, recruited the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, an incredible kind of headline. And also, you know, you have to also, uh, as as President Biden sits back and looks at this, that was his, that was his job in the Senate. Um, you know, Biden, when he became this kind of titan of foreign policy, had that position long before, you know, he, of course, became vice president and then president. So that's a really serious job where you have access to classified information. Um, both you know, in diplomatic channels and in, in intelligence channels, and um, wow, this is a this is a kind of an espionage story for the ages. You know, and it's it it highlights to you. You know, we're not supposed to be bought. U.S. officials in in the U.S. Well, this is something we pride ourselves on in in the United States that that our system is is not one where it should be bought, where individuals in positions of power and influence. Um, can be influenced in any way to to change foreign policy decisions. It undermines faith in the system, and uh, which could have significant ramifications. And I should add, by the way, this is at a time Senator Menendez is is quite loud on on a number of foreign policy issues, especially when it comes to human rights. And there are things he has said or or policies he's pushed that I've agreed with and disagreed with, but. It's 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 a shame to see when you know he's been, for example, he's been very loud about the way Azerbaijan's treating Armenia and Armenians inside Azerbaijan uh, on Turkey, and then and then you see this was happening at a time when Egypt's human rights track record was heavily heavily criticized, and for him to be to be caught up in you know accepting and by the way I should have added that some of the bribes he accepted included a Mercedes, mortgage payments, exercise equipment, which I think is quite odd. I mean, buy your own Peloton, <laughs> um, a jewelry, a gold bars, which just makes it seem like a, a scene out of, out of The Sopranos. Um, Susan, I want to I talk a little bit about the political angle as well. And so now you have, Menendez held a press conference on Monday where he said he did not intend to resign after these charges and said that he believes he'll be exonerated and uh, that he thinks he'll get out of this. He has all sorts of reasons that he has claimed for having 
piles of cash inside his house. One of the reasons, by the way, was that he said that, you know, as a, as a, child of an immigrant Cuban family that he, you know, he was raised with kind of this feeling of, of needing to have, to take cash out of his savings and have it in, 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 in his possession. I think that's interesting because his family fled before Castro. So they left, they left and immigrated to the United States before Castro. So his, his whole argument doesn't even really seem to make sense. But anyway, there is a list, there's a growing list of Democrats in Congress and across New Jersey calling for Menendez to resign. And we're, and some big names. So I mentioned Cory Booker, of course, who is his fellow senator uh, from New Jersey, but also John Fetterman, Nancy Pelosi uh, said that it would probably be a good idea if Menendez resigned. Um, and then by Tuesday, a third of, of all the Democratic senators had called for Menendez's resignation. So, um, Susan, what do these calls do for Menendez politically and for the people calling for his resignation? Already you have folks like Representative Andy Kim coming out and saying, like, I'm ready to challenge him. So is, he, is, he, is his position tenable? Can he stay even if he wanted to? Yeah, the first thing I thought of when I heard his press conference and he started saying he needs to have money because you never, you know, because you just want to have something um, in case of an emergency. I'm like, does anyone keep $480,000 and a couple of gold bars in their to-go bag? Like, I don't think so. I have medical records, prescriptions, whatever important papers you have, and maybe some money, but not $480,000. So I... That was pretty laughable. The other important thing to keep in mind is that he already skated by getting uh, previous federal charges that were brought up for him. He was not found not guilty, which is really important. He was basically, it was a, a hung jury. They couldn't, they couldn't make a decision and they, the feds decided not to prosecute um, or go retry the case. There's no way that the feds brought this case without having this lockdown, even more so than than the other case. And it's interesting to see how Menendez is trying to use the same argument he did with, you know, taking money from the eye doctor who was a friend and what that means and bringing it here. And I'll admit, when I first heard this, I was like, okay, another elected official on the take, he's doing this, you know, he, you know, he, it came up before, and I'm sure his colleagues were like, how many times do I have to do this with this guy? Like, I stood by him once. I'm not doing it again. And they really don't want to go there. And of course, the Republican <laughs> response is, oh, he's innocent until proven guilty because they have to carry the water for Donald Trump. So it was all a mess. But I, I just need to go back to say, my mind was blown this morning when I saw that article that Mark co-wrote for uh, JustSecurity.org. And it's really important that people go read it because I did not realize, or I didn't really piece it together, just what a national security threat Menendez was and still potentially is. And, you know, we talk about things about his position, some of his positions, which frankly, just if you would have asked this question two years ago, that Republicans would have said, oh, he's good on some of those issues. And we talk about human rights. But like now I'm wondering, well, what did it cost? You have to put that cloud of doubt over him. Now, I think that Menendez may, uh, he, he will not run for reelection. And in politics, you tend to, or when politics and, and criminal charges converge, 
Uh, elect officials tend to stay in their office as a bargaining chip with government. So like, oh, I'll step down if you don't press charges kind of thing. I don't think he's going to get that far, but there's talk about who will replace him. It will be a blue state. It's not like the Democrats are, are going to worry about losing um, New Jersey. Although just interesting side effect, a side note is uh, Governor Murphy's wife is interested in being appointed to the seat. So, you know, that just also seems like a bad visual. Why do that? But at the end, um, I don't think the politics are nearly as important as what Mark points out. And I just want to say, go again to justsecurity.org. Read this immediately. And and just for FYI, I don't know much about you know foreign policy or national security like the two of you are experts in, but I could understand it. So they did a really good job of breaking it down that it's very digestible and take the time to read it. When you know, and Mark, I want I would do I want you to, to expand further on on the national security implications here because you know these are these are activities that aside from the corruption allegations, these are activities that usually registered foreign agents do. That's what a foreign agent does. Um, they are registered with the DOJ. They must. If they don't, it's criminal. Um, and it is because they are hired, paid paid by a foreign government to influence U.S. policy. And that is what the crux of, of a foreign agent. And so we haven't even gotten to that part yet, it seems. I mean, or I don't know if if, if that's the next round of, of charges, but I find it interesting that, you know, it's You've got somebody who's who's in a real position of affecting change. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then and then ranking member, and then or ranking member as he was at the time, and now chairman. Um, these are positions that that can put holds on military aid, and that can decide how much military aid, whether to sell arms, whether or not to sell arms, is a real position of power. And, and you know, and I find it funny, and listen, I don't want to get ahead, of course, of the of the indictment. And, and you can tell that the Biden administration doesn't either, which I find interesting, but, you know, they probably can't. And, and I understand that they want to wait for, for a conviction or, or, or so on. But, but it's, if you read through this and the charges, they, it's ugly. And and very you know, very obvious what was go- what was happening here, and that it was very deliberate as well. This this these efforts to accept accept particular bribes and and material gifts and so on in exchange for making uh, making a, changing policies because you see it in the text message chains that that are that are there between Menendez and his wife and and between his wife and um, this business contact. So. Mark, can you unpack a little bit as well, even more? And and as as Susan mentioned, your piece in Just Security is so good. Tell us a little bit more what's there and what's at stake. You mentioned in your piece, for example, that there may be more there than that we're not aware of. So can you talk about that? Well, that, that's a huge point, right? And so so you know, often and you know, when the Department of Justice is going to is going to you know prosecute someone, uh, whether it's uh, you know public corruption or certainly when it has to do with counterintelligence and, and espionage, they're going to do things that they can actually gain a conviction. There might be a lot other things there. There also might be some things that they don't want to have uh, become public. So, uh, you know, if you go under the assumption that Menendez was a recruited foreign asset of the Egyptian intelligence service, you know, what else has he done? Um, and and to me, that's that means much more than stripping him of his, uh, you know, by, by, by practice, stripping him of his committee chairmanship, but also, you know, he's still a senator. He still has a secret clearance. He cannot receive classified briefings anymore. He cannot go down to the State Department. He should have no contact 
um, with any of kind of the you know, the executive branch um, in in pushing forth foreign policy. And so that's something uh, of concern. I think that um, you know I'm not sure if we'll ever it will ever become public on on uh, you know the extent of of kind of his his criminality. Um, but again, when you go down, if we just just by by assumption, okay, he was working for the Egyptian government. Um, there, there could be more there, and that's of that's of concern. I think one of the things that uh, the Biden administration is in a bit of a, a pickle here. So ordinarily, in, on these espionage scandals, you know, there there has to be some kind of reciprocity. We have to, you know, the Egyptians did this. What are we going to do back? Are we going to uh, declare persona non grata? That means expel, you know, Egyptian officials from the embassy in Washington. That's kind of a, a, a practice. Um, sometimes these things are, you know, with allies are done kind of quietly, but there there has to be some kind of of sanction on uh, on the Egyptians. And the last piece, which I think is really important, is that Menendez was a powerful figure. So, as and I'm talking about things actually that do affect, for example, uh, uh, Europe and 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 NATO and expansion of NATO. So, what's happening? Um, the Turks and the and the Swedes are still in this kind of uh, uh, dispute, um, and Sweden has not ascended to NATO because of Turkish objections. Well. What did Turkey want out of this? Turkey wants F-16s. Who was blocking this? It was Menendez. And so just his removal from this scene, it has nothing to do with the Egyptian part of it, but the removal from the scene starts this, you know, uh, kind of foreign policy role. And so um, uh, same thing with, the, you know, with the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. He was opposed to that. Menendez was a very strong ally of, of Israel as well. And um, this is going to come up um, if there's some kind of Israeli-Saudi uh uh, you know, normalization deal. So he had a tremendous effect on U.S. Uh, foreign policy based on his position. Now he will no longer be there. So there are also, you know, these second order effects that have nothing to do with the indictment, but all of a sudden this powerful person um, is gone. I think that um, kind of the the last part on this, uh, which which is important, I'm, I'm glad and you, you all were very kind in, in talking about the, the piece that uh, from just security is that, you know, the American people have to understand that this behavior is not right. I mean, this is so beyond the, the pale in terms of ethics and morals. And it is important that the Department of Justice, you know, prosecute public officials who do these things. You know, there is a crisis of confidence in this country uh, about uh, about uh, uh, our government institutions, particularly on the national security side. I think it's a lot of it's unfair. It's certainly promulgated by Fox News and some of these other kind of um, uh, you know, uh, extreme, you know, right-wing MAGA folks. But um, when the Department of Justice can crack down, can can actually, you know, prosecute a Democratic official, that's important. Um, and and I think Democrats would be, and this goes more in Susan's lane, but Democrats would be, you know, well-served to to support this move. Um, you know, they can't, uh, uh, yeah, and, and I think they have. And, and, and ultimately, um, uh, I don't think Menendez is is going to be uh, around much longer in terms of of you know it kind of having any ability or, or to influence U.S. policy. I think that the indictment and and the release of those documents, if you read those thirty nine pages, um, it's pretty damn. One of the things is you know you hear about this, but then when you dive in and you read it, uh, Hagar, as you said, um, it does kind of make the hair kind of stand up on your arm. It's pretty pretty uh, pretty extraordinary um, what Menendez did. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add one thing, and then Susan, I want to hear if you agree, and and if you think Menendez will still be around um, in a few months. But when when the reason I harped in on that point about him passing information about who was at the embassy, and um, and their nationalities and so on, is because that as and it's why you honed in on it. It's a pretty well known tactic uh, that that's often sometimes the first thing a government will ask to see if you're recruitable. And I, when I was at the White House and I met with my Russian counterparts and, uh, and had to, this was the year 2011, 
2012, 2011, 2012. And uh, and I met with them, uh, disclosed that to my security officers before the meeting. And they kind of warned me about what I might be asked. And sure enough, when I got back to my desk after a fairly successful meeting, oh no, I was asked to meet with a second person, uh, disclosed that. I went and met with the second person. And sure enough, that second person, uh, when I got back to my desk, asked me if I wouldn't mind sharing a um, a directory of the folks in my own team, uh, just so that they could know. You know, they they have they have other issues. I was on the in the Middle East office at the National Security Council. You know, they have other issues. They want to talk about the Egypt director and the Palestinian director and so on. I was handling Lebanon and Syria. So would I mind just ha- passing them along a list of who was there and their names and numbers and such? And I mean, I knew immediately. So obviously, I didn't respond and disclosed that to the uh, security folks in my office. And that was the first thing I thought of when I saw with Menendez. I was like, I, I mean, if... Hagar, if- <laughs> let, me, let me just throw in, I, I failed on one, one piece to kind of explain why this actually really matters. I apologize. So, so when the Egyptians want to uncover who the intelligence presence is, and Senator Menendez, you know, thinks he's just passing this, you know, uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, staffing list uh, at the embassy, and maybe, at, they, maybe they're asking some more questions. But ultimately, what the Egyptians want to do is catch people who are spying against Egypt and execute them. And so, you know, this actually really matters. You know, what is sacrosanct in our old business is is the relationship between the United States government and our agents. These are our spies. This is someone we recruit um, who provides secret information to us. And in return, we give this kind of sacred pledge to keep them safe. Uh, And Menendez, while he, you know, may have thought this diplomatic list was something innocuous, could have led to the exposure of, of someone working for the United States government who actually could lose their life. And so the stakes are enormously high. And so, you know, I think that's what, uh, uh, and obviously, you know, <laughs> the story you told, I was smiling. I mean, kind of classic uh, intelligence modus operandi. Um, and you could also see, look, you had this, you had a, a, a keen sense of counterintelligence awareness. You could also see how perhaps someone who's not as attuned um, uh, to this would actually maybe provide that kind of list to the to the you know a, a Russian official who you just had you know just had a great meeting with and everything seemed kind of uh, uh, on the up and up but in, in reality it's really not so what Menendez um, uh, you know conceivably could have done um, would have you know would would lead to uh, something absolutely uh, uh, terrible in, in my old line of work which would be the compromise uh, of an asset and so it's it's pretty damn serious yeah well and, and there's just something else to add it's not just Menendez. It's his wife. Yeah, it's his wife. Right. And it, these people came through his wife. So I, I see, you know, my head starts to race. I'm not saying there's anything there, but who knows what the Egyptian government or those business folks have on Senator and Mrs. Menendez. Right. They might have seated her in. I mean, this is again, this is getting to be like a, a, a B grade movie, but maybe she was, you know, was recruited by the Egyptians even before this. Exactly. Um, and so we don't know where it is, where it all is going to unravel, but probably we never will. And that's also another thing. When the DOJ brings a case, they want to be able to fully prosecute it and show evidence. Well, if there's a lot of classified documents and evidence, they know it can't be, you know, they don't want to declassify it. So what they do is maybe not prosecute it. And that, just going back into the political side, is what senators will tend to hear and learn and whisper about, like, there's something worse. And I just have to figure, if these are the charges DOJ had, this is what they had locked up, but it is nowhere close to what they know. 
On Tuesday, Jay Solomon, who is a friend of mine, by the way, and someone I find quite credible and who knows Iran very well, he wrote an article for Semaphore about an Iranian operation aimed at bringing Western academics and Iranian diplomats closer, just to stay in this realm of foreign influence in Washington. The project was called the Iran Experts Initiative, and Semaphore had leaked emails from, uh, the, from the Iranian government that suggest that an Iranian official might have influenced some U.S. academics to project Tehran's perspective in Western media and also to influence U.S. foreign policy. There were also allegations in this article that Robert Malley, who was the special envoy to Iran, and Ariane Tabatabai, a Pentagon official who had improper relations with the, with the Iranian government through this Iran Experts Initiative, um, that these the allegations highlight the uh, co- correspondence, for example, between these academics and the Iranian government and efforts to place op-eds, for example, and paint this rosier picture of, of Iran or at least push the, the advantages of a deal. So this operation was established in 2013 under the Rouhani administration, and uh, who at the time he was trying to shift Iran's international image after the former president Ahmadinejad was viewed as quite controversial and hardline. And according to these emails, the plan was for Iran's foreign ministry through its in-house think tank, which was called the Institute for Political and International Studies, to put together a core group of six to 10 scholars from leading international think tanks and academic institutions, and to communicate with them over the next 18 months to aggressively promote the merits of a nuclear deal between the U.S. and Iran. And one of the core members of that core group was, as I mentioned, Ariane Tabatabai, who's now the chief of staff for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations at the Pentagon. She is one of the three members of the group who worked closely with Rob Malley over the last decade. And now Iranian officials, they in, in these emails that were leaked, they heralded the success of this effort and they consistently monitored how frequently these academics were featured in the news, what they were saying, their efforts. And so, Mark, let's start with you. I want to see what what did you make of this report? And how much of this, you know, I was, I was struggling with this a bit as, well, as, I, as I read it as well. How much of this is a genuine effort on the part of a foreign government to influence U.S. foreign policy and perception in the United States, which a lot of governments do? And how, how much of it, how, how willing and or willing, I guess, were these think tank participants, academics in this effort? Because... Sometimes I keep thinking, how much of it were think tankers just being scholars and and interviewing people and doing their jobs and trying to push different perspectives and opinions, and how much of it was them being part of this larger operation, witting or unwittingly? Sure, and and Hagar, this one is ugly. It's ugly, and and, I, and I'll tell you why. You know, battle lines are drawn in Washington, and you know my phone blew up last night and all morning. People are already pissed at me for some some of the kind of the, my commentary on Twitter, which I should have known better, of course. Um, but but ultimately, uh, it is it is wrapped up uh, between two different administrations um, and uh, what Iran policy should be, uh, and uh, and 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 of course you know, Washington, you know the foreign policy blob. Everyone is is close and tight here, so everybody knows everybody involved in this, including the journalists who are really well respected, um, and so. You know where to begin on this, and I think you know in reading both articles, and I would urge people to read them 
closely, there is, uh, you know, you, you have to kind of take a look and, and first ask yourself, are, are some of these charges accurate, which is in, in essence, um, you know, this, uh, you know, these uh, academics who seem to have been in contact with and working alongside the, Iran- the Iranians. Um, uh, some of the emails are a little unsettling and, and kind of gross, frankly, and, and you know, uh, uh, groveling a bit to the, to the Iranians. So that really wasn't great to see. Uh, and then ultimately, they get involved in the Iran negotiations, some officially, some on the side. And in one case, you know, one of the members, as you noticed, is now chief of staff to what's called Solik um, at, at DOD. Uh, uh, and so there's questions of uh, the security clearance process there. So, so ultimately, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to, you know, A, whether these individuals did engage in this behavior, um, which does seem to be some, some kind of unsettling contact with the, with the Iranian regime on their, on their efforts to influence the United States government. Um, and then number two, one official who ends up, uh, or one person who ends up uh, getting a security clearance. But ultimately, you know, as I've come down on this, and I, this is going to be in the weeds, and again, this is, this is getting nasty because it, it, is, it is very partisan now. Um, and the Republicans have already taken this up and, you know, they've sent a letter to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence demanding more information. Um, but the question is, you know, it, it's not nece- necessarily um, something criminal like we're talking about previously on the Menendez part. But, you know, uh, uh, who deserves a security clearance? Um, so, you know, if you had engaged in your private life in some kind of back channel, you know, plus whatever it's called, um, you know, uh, uh, negotiations, you uh, uh, you know, that might have been good and fine. And yeah, you might have been doing it for good reasons. But ultimately, can you then get a clearance from the United States government if you had such contact um, with the Iranians and express some views that's, that are a little alarming? And the answer is, in some cases, no. And it's not, it doesn't mean these people are bad people. Um, and so there's a lot swirling around here. I know this, you know, that's a kind of a long convoluted um, uh, explanation. It's not going to be as simple as um, uh, the way the Republicans are pushing it. But you also, and let me just say something uh, 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 as well, there's also seems to be a lot of silence from the national security media on this too. Um, and so I think this is, uh, th- this is something that's really going to develop. I do, there's going to be hearings on the Hill on this. Um, and and the, you know, the security folks from, from you know, diplomatic security at state and DOD are going to have to answer some questions. Um, because again, uh, it, it looks like there was some, a, a history of contact, even if it was 10 years ago, uh, with these academics who then became more prominent in one case has a, has a very uh, significant job now in the, in, uh, in DOD. Yeah. You know, for me, it was the same thing. My, my first thought when I was reading the, the, these articles, the, the main glaring issue for me was, was the question of the security clearance, because you're talking about significant contact with a foreign government and it's not just any foreign government. Um, as you said, the lines were drawn, you know, and, um, and having gone through these processes myself, I just, I I don't know, you know, and we don't know, we don't know how much was disclosed beforehand. Um, I can't imagine that a lot of it was secret because at the same time I've worked with think tankers and I know how, um, it's just, it's a very different world and and it's a very different goals there for your job. And that doesn't mean that, you can't have think tankers and academics in touch with foreign governments when they're trying to inform their own thinking, or maybe they're just interviewing for an article of some kind um, and reporting what they hear. But I agree with you. There were some some emails there that were that, that were icky because they came off like like a witting winning participation in an information campaign. Now I can't, we have to let that, you know, carry out because I agree with you. I think, I think there'll be, there'll be hearings, but the influence campaign from the Iranian government itself is undeniable. And um, these, you know, these have all looked different, but 
it it's just we have a series of them now coming up in the US right we've got there was a major influence campaign by Russia during the 2016 election Graphica uncovered a major Chinese influence campaign that ended with Facebook's largest banning of accounts. Now we know, we, as we just discussed, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee may have been compromised by Egypt, and now you have this. And I think most Americans see the United States, whether they like it or not, as an influencer of other countries rather than the target of influence campaigns. And, you know, so, Mark, I'm going to shoot it back to you to see if you can talk about that. How do you... How do you view this trend? And then also, Susan, what? how do you see this playing out politically? Are the Republicans going to try and really take advantage of this? Can they take advantage of this? How far are they going to go? Well, I think just just in terms of kind of, you know, covert influence, um, this is obviously something that our adversaries do. We are an open society. I mean, you know, we make it easy. And so one of the things that 2016 interference, the Russian interference in our elections um, was not a sophisticated campaign by Russia. It was just, you know, taking advantage of of a very open democratic country, um, and, and and so I think there, there, you know, there has to be some kind of uh, uh, you know recognition, and and there is um, kind of in the counter counterintelligence world uh, about this, and so um, uh, you know certainly other countries are doing this uh, uh, towards us. Um, I think it has to do with, you know, background investigations of, of personnel is, uh, is important, more awareness. Um, but ultimately, we live in an open democratic society. And, and you know, in, in some cases, there's not much you can do. Again, when you have, uh, uh, you know, academics, I mean, you, in some sense, you do want to encourage people to talk, um, uh, uh, you know, but, but um, you also have to be aware uh, uh, that security clearance is not for everyone. And the final piece is, I would I would say that you have to also rely on the intelligence community to uncover these things. So if we have penetrations, for example, of the Iranian government, the Egyptian government, the Russian government, um, we will be able to find out what they're doing, and it would then be important um, to, uh, uh, to to take action. So it's almost a sense of uh, also responsibility for us um, to do our job for the intelligence community to do their job better. Um, you know, you know, why is Semaphore publishing these articles and these emails? Um, did did you know, did we know about this from our uh, you know, penetrations of, uh, uh, of the Iranians. I think that was, um, that's something that certainly should be addressed by in the, in the Senate and the house uh, intelligence committees. Yeah. Susan, your thoughts. Well, there's a few things. Um, one, you know, when it comes to these think tanks and, um, academics, I'm not giving it a pass, but like if you're doing something like on Turkey or Saudi Arabia, like there is, we are friendly. The U.S. is friendly at times with these countries. Iran's a sworn enemy of the United States. Like you, you should know better. Like any conversations have to be treated as suspect. They just do. It doesn't mean they are. But you have to look at through that lens, like we were talking about before, being approached by a foreign government to give a directory of people who work at the State Department. So there's that. But um, Mark said something really interesting. He said, it's not as simple as Republicans make it. He's right. But guess what? It is that simple because they have a very easy message. And, it, and it's happening now. Under Biden, these the information's coming out. What's concerning to me is that, especially on national security and foreign policy, it used to thread through administrations. 
These are career people who are involved in their, you know, when it comes to security in our, our country and coming up with policy. It had no D or R next to it. There's no question in my mind that the Republicans will seize on it. And I've said this many, many times on this show. If you're explaining, you're losing. And unfortunately, on this issue, there's a lot to, that needs explaining. And we know what hearings look like and we know what grandstanding looks like. And it is going to be that easy for Republicans to come up with some messaging on this. Let me let me throw one quick thing on there. And, and you know, the, the administration, particularly the State Department, has not done anyone any favors with the silence on the whole, whole Rob Malley issue. So this is this is someone who is our chief negotiator with Iran, whose security clearance apparently has been suspended. And no one can figure out why. I mean, it's, you know, what, what's amazing to me is now, I, as a former national security official, now in the media, you know, the, 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 the reporters for the Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal, no one can actually knows. Um, and they've clamped down on this to such an extent. And that gives the Republicans, Republicans huge ammunition. And so it's, it's so oh, yeah. you know, the state is not doing themselves or the administration any favors on this whatsoever as they're going down potentially for, you know, you know once again, a, 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 another reverse in U.S. policy, but perhaps another historic deal with the Iranians. Yet our lead negotiator, his, his security clearance has been revoked. I mean, Susan, in your world, I mean, that's just... You know, that's, Here that's you go. Like fresh lead meat right there. Yeah. Lead negotiator in the Biden administration has security clearance suspended. And that's all you need. There's no, I don't it. need to tell you why. Right. And, and, and I run nego- dealing with Iran on top of it. Just, just throw in the country's name. And there reversing policies that the Trump administration put through, which was suspending the deal. And so it just thrown yeah, that all together. That just kind of maybe that's a yeah. second, third tier thing, because I'm telling you, they're not that good at this. As far as getting into the intellectual arguments, which you could argue sometimes hurts the Democrats because they are good at it, but um, no one wants to listen to it or they only have so much bandwidth. So on this one, Biden appoints national security risks, employs people who are national security. Now in plural, by the way, it was first it was Mali. Now you have uh, the chief of staff at Solik at at, at DOD. Again, it's hard to get that soundbite is not very, uh, uh, you know, productive. No, and, well, and, and I don't, I, I'm not saying I, I think that this should happen. I'm just saying it's easy to see how things, you know, evolve. And it's a, it's a talking point for the Republicans and it's like, boom. And, you know, here you have it. And can you trust them? So what else don't they have? Right. Maybe they're, maybe they, they're wrong on Ukraine too. Who's advising them on Ukraine? That's right. an easy jump. Why are we giving money? Who are we giving money to? I, I mean, give me tw- give me an hour, and I will give you a blueprint for the next six months <laughs> of what a, a campaign could look like. Yeah, I think that's. I and I don't even right. know the issue. Just to add, <laughs> I'm not even a national security or foreign <laughs> policy expert, and I can do it. <laughs> but that's why they got to do cleanup on this and quickly. Um, you know, assuming that that you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, unless unless Rob Malley is is about to get indicted and he's in serious trouble. I mean, you know, this kind of this you know, uh, uh, weird, you know, wasteland that everyone is, is living in on these issues is not really helpful at all. It just, it just feeds this kind of rumor mill and, and, and what, you know, Fox is going to incessantly talk about. And of course it, it, there's, there's no retort to it. I, I don't know what to say. You don't know what to say. Who knows? Um, they have to come to a resolution on these things. If Rob Malley is a security risk, remove him, period. He's not removed. He's in this limbo. He's still in his position, but he doesn't have access to classified. You know, that's not tenable for someone who is leading our nuclear negotiations with Iran. And that's, you know, in some ways, 
it's a bit of an own goal by the administration, at least politically, for sure. It's frightening on multiple levels. Let's right. put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And 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 I don't think it's a good, it's, it's not a good look when you have an FBI investigation going on. Um, it, it, it makes it seem like it's untenable to even stay in that kind of position. I think this story is only going to continue growing. And I think you're right that um, the State Department's not doing itself any favors. The Pentagon, I should should add, came out very strongly, you know, to support Ariane Tabatabai and, you know, and and their faith in her. And so they came out with, 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 with something. They didn't decline to comment like everything else. But, um, but still, you know, um, I think it, I, I agree that th- this this could easily become a political political game of chess. Very, it's, it's, it's like, it could be a gift to Republicans for sure. You know, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, a lot of foreign policy, which was my personal favorite. Uh, let's talk about what we're watching in general. Stories that that we're watching that we're interested in. Um, Susan, why don't you start? Um, I'm really interested in the upcoming which we know is going to happen, debate on immigration and border security. And the stories I'm looking at have nothing to do with photos of the southern border or caravans or anything like that. It has to do with how the migrant situation is seeping into suburbs. And yes, they're mostly in blue states right now, but those visuals, similar to the way Republican use crime in big blue cities, Nationally, I think that they are going. This is going to become an issue that suburban moms are going to become very focused on, because when you have to look at the housing issues that governments are facing, you know, Mayor Adams is trying, but Kathy Hochul just has her head in the sand and saying it's a New York City problem. Well, it's very quickly, it, it is a New York problem, and every state is going to start dealing with that. And all you need is that narrative to start building just a little bit, and God forbid one thing goes wrong. And now all of a sudden, our immigration issue is like, it's not at the border. It's not something like, oh my God, look at the people coming into the country. Like, it's, it's, they're my neighbor. And that to me is the, the, the story, is, is immigration and the border seeping into the suburbs? And I think it is. Yeah, definitely something to watch and definitely something that's going to play out a lot uh, over the next year with the elections coming up. Mark, a story you're watching. So this is one that that I am actually mildly obsessive with because it has to do with leadership. And this has to do with uh, Mark Milley, who's, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who steps down next week. He's retiring, um, who, of course, Donald Trump has attacked um, repeatedly and has also <laughs> called, in essence, for his execution for treason. And And so what is the story is... It's as follows as will we see Mark Milley do something that some of his uh, uh, peers and his predecessors have not, and that is speak out. And I think, you know, there is a tradition, of course, in the United States military for officers when they retire not to to say anything politically, um, to stay quiet. You see, you know, General Mattis and General Kelly really not having gone out and talked to the world about the um, some of the terrible parts of the, of the Trump administration. But Milley, I get a sense, might be different. Um, you know, he's a he's a, you know. Boston ex-hockey player, tough as nails. Um, and and I think that, you know, perhaps his finest hour, and this does go against tradition, but his finest hour will be to talk about what it was like in the Trump administration. Um, this is going to upset a lot of people, uh, in, in, you know, his military colleagues, um, because it's supposed to be apolitical. But I, I would argue that these are extraordinary times and he could do the country 
um, a, a great service. Uh, uh, and so that's what I'm really looking for is, is literally as, as next week is, is final week um, at, at DOD is what we, will he do in, in public life? It's not just writing a book, um, but it's being vocal. You saw he went on 60 Minutes. Um, he was on CBS yesterday, um, which is, a, and I think he did very well in that. But, you know, this is a tough dude. And the more kind of Trump, you know, you know goes on his un, unhinged true social rants about him, um, I do wonder if Millie's going to speak out. I sure hope he will. Um, and again, I would say that extraordinary times uh, do call for that. But this is going to be a big story in the, in the kind, of, kind of coming weeks and, and months and certainly before the election. Fascinating. Um, well, we'll hope he makes the right decision. I am following a story that um, that is heartbreaking. I've talked about it before, and so I'm still following it. And it's about the roughly now f- over 50,000 Armenians who have fled Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an area they they used to self-govern that sits within within Azerbaijan's borders. And for the last nine months, uh, Azerbaijan's dictator has been starving the population there in plain sight with, you know, everybody seeing it and, and knowing about it and nothing being done. And in, in a span of two days, it was like a lightning speed effort. Uh, Azerbaijan struck the area. A ceasefire was negotiated by Russia where Azerbaijan took complete control over the entire area. And as a result, and because of fears of continued ethnic cleansing, thousands, tens of thousands of Armenians have fled the area. There are 120,000 Armenians who who live there. And right now, as of last night, it was reported that it was over 50,000 who've left and counting. And there's so much at stake here. And it's, well, first it, it gives, it, it, it upsets me because it's a top, it's a topic I follow very closely. And because I believe that this was something preventable because it wasn't a war, it was a blockade. And we have a lot of leverage over Azerbaijan because of millions of military aid we give to, to Azerbaijan for counterterrorism purposes. And we didn't even threaten diplomatic or economic consequences of any kind. And neither did the Europeans, by the way. And there were probably other geopolitical goals at st- you know at stake here that were prioritized, and uh, you know Azerbaijan sells natural gas to Europe at a time when and they increased it after the Ukraine war at a time when Europe really needs it, and when we're trying to kick Russian gas off the market. So you know I understand that there are other geopolitical goals, but I'm a big believer in national security that there need to be there needs to be a way to walk and chew gum at the same time. And now what's at stake is you've got potential ethnic cleansing of the Armenians who are still there, who remain. You have potential destruction of centuries-old churches and monasteries. Some of the first churches in the world are there. You have um, potential continued aggression by Azerbaijan because there is land, Azerbaijan land, on the other side of Armenia, and Azerbaijan is looking to draw a connection between the two, between the mainland and, and this other corner. You know, whomever drew these maps was a real dumbass, by the way. But anyway... I don't think that they'll be that they'll that they'll hold back. You have a major shift in balance of power in that corner of the world. Now you have Russia really being impotent and being unable to broker much um, and 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 do much in the face of Azerbaijan. You have Azerbaijan and Turkey really increasing their power and the, their ability to pursue their goals because of the their military strength you have the fact that this borders Iran and what that could mean. And and finally, and most importantly, you have a message that's been sent to dictators all over the world on how to pursue, you know, a playbook on how to pursue successful ethnic cleansing and, and take over certain areas without any kind of punishment, with impunity. 
And um, and so this is something I'm watching because I don't think this story is over, and uh, and it's 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 just it's deeply upsetting, and um, we'll have to see what happens. And unfortunately, I don't think there are a lot of solutions at this point, other than perhaps a peacekeeping force to protect the folks there. But I'm not sure if that's going to happen. To end on on a happy note, praying for the Armenians. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to be looking at this whistleblower testimony alleging the CIA tried to cover up its own assessment that COVID likely came from a lab leak, where can everybody find you on the internet? Mark, go ahead. So I am unfortunately or fortunately uh, a sort of prolific user of Twitter. So I'm at, at M Polymer. And uh, uh, as, uh, as my friends always tell me, you know, it is, it is not something that has any kind of filter. Um, it'll be a kind of a, a mix of my love of the Boston Red Sox, um, a lot of intel and foreign policy stuff, but I have fun with it. And so, and, and I, I will say that the thing I'm most kind of uh, uh, focused on these days is uh, are the Swifties, how the how GOP and Fox have now mobilized an army. Um, so I'll be tweeting a lot about uh, about probably the biggest uh, mistake that the, the Republicans have made in a long time, which is pissing off Taylor Swift. Yes, there's... Just to jump in before before Susan, you tell us where you're at. There's a real, there is something there with the Swifties. If I do a video related to to, to Taylor Swift, um, it gets it gets way more views and comments than anything else I do. And I've joked before about that. I need, clearly I need to switch to becoming a Taylor Swift news channel. And some people will be like, "Yes, you you should do that." I'm like, "No, no, no, <laughs> I'm sticking to foreign policy." But yeah, it's uh, they, they poke the bear. Yep, watch yep. out. Um, and, and again, your book, your book title. Yes. So, uh, the book is Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. It's from HarperCollins. Um, and it's out on, on Amazon. I'm still going around the country talking leadership. I spent a lot of time with, um, everyone from athletic teams. I, and I've been talking to universities. I'll be going to the Naval Academy, to Citadel, to VMI. Um, I work with a lot of military commands, just again, teaching leadership in crisis situations. It's something that it, um, you know, I, I believe in strongly and, uh, I've been having fun doing it. Great. And Susan, where can we all find you? I'm still on that Twitter X, whatever they call it now. Um, at Del Percio S I never write about the Red Sox, um, ever, <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift once in a while. But, um, what you can do is if you go onto my Twitter feed, which isn't very um, busy, you will find a link to Mark's column on justsecurity.org. So for you Twitter folks, just go on there, take a look, and please read it. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach Ron and the team as always at podcast at politicology.com. I'm Hagar Shamali, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>